Welcome to another episode of How the Art World Works. I'm your host, Megan Flanders, and this episode contains strong language that might not be cool for sensitive audiences. You can catch up on any episodes you might have missed at our website, artworldpodcast.com. Please consider donating to our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar, you can help us offset the costs of research and production of this podcast and allow us the flexibility to make more episodes. Turns out producing stuff yourself is pretty expensive. Join a community of other Art World amigos, ad-free episodes, and our exclusive bonus content with our guests, patreon.com slash artworldpodcast. And finally, if you like what we do, please help us get the word out by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing this podcast however you can. Thank you. This week's guest is a pull no punches powerhouse and art dealership. Successful New York gallerist, artist advocate, agent, and more. Here's our conversation with Patricia Hamilton. I'm Patricia Hamilton. I'm a private art dealer. I've been an art dealer since 1977. I used to have a public gallery in New York. I moved out here in 1990, and I sell art to private collectors. So can you tell us a little bit about your gallery and when I, you ran it at the time? I opened the gallery in 1977, and I was a very young girl, and I went out and I raised all the money to open the gallery, and I showed a lot of women. I showed Louise Bourgeois for the first time in 20 years. I showed Grace Hardigan, Deborah Remington, Joan Snyder, just a lot, 60 to 70% women. I was about the, about, the, about the only gallery that the Gorilla Girls did not protest. Right. Um, I gave a benefit for heresies, you know, that... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I gave a benefit for heresies in my gallery. Anyway, I was pushing women before anybody was. And Louise, you couldn't give the work away. Oh, I know. You couldn't give it away. Uh, for, for all... For, I'll take whatever's left, I promise. Good yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I showed a lot of sculpture, also mm-hmm. a bit loony. I showed a guy named Robert Murray, a Canadian, Ronald Bladen. And I also showed tough abstract painting. Ron Gorchev, John Torriano... But I, I had uh, no qualms about showing tough art. The gallery was there from 77 to 84, and then a third of my family died of cancer in one year. Oh, and I, Fuck! Yeah, and I kind of lost it. And um, when I woke up, I was in debt up to my armpits. And so I sold the lease, paid off the debt, 100 cents on the dollar, which is unheard of mm-hmm. in the art gallery business. Now, you were in New York, right? I was in New York on 57th okay. Street. Got it. 20 West 57th Street. So I paid off the debt, and then I thought about what it was I did in the art world that I liked, mm-hmm. which was promoting artists and working with artists and doing shows, but that maybe you didn't have to do eight or nine shows a year. So I decided to do pop-up shows way before anybody did a Mm pop-up show. So there was a space in Soho called 112 Green Street. So I rented 112 Green Street. And uh, one year, practically to the day that my gallery closed, I opened a show at 112 Green Street of a sculptor named Peter Reginato, who was originally from California. And it did really well. And I just thought, God, if you do three shows a year... Anyway, I sold a lot of the work from that show to people in L.A. So I came out to L.A. and I rented Jerry Solomon's space on La Brea 
and did a show with Peter Reginato out at Jerry Solomon Space on La Brea. And then I decided at one point to rent a space and build out a space in Chicago for a one-man show. And then I, I uh, when Jerry Solomon had rented the space and that space was no longer available, I built out a space in Santa Monica uh, that I then later leased to Christopher Grimes. You know, so I, I was doing pop-up shows before anybody was doing them. And then 1990 came along and, you know, I wasn't so stupid that I didn't smell a recession and I was mm-hmm. showing a lot of mid-career people. And I knew things were bad. I went to the Chicago Art Fair and things just stank. Mm-hmm. You know, you could tell things were really tanking. And then I did a show for Isaac Witkin, who is one of my all-time favorite artists. It did not sell and he made a beautiful show. And I knew that it didn't sell because of the... the because the tides were changing. The tides were really changing. But he understood it. He was a real mensch about it, and he understood it, that nobody works as hard for a show than me. I just knew things were going to be rough, and I had an opportunity to come out here and be the director of Salander O'Reilly in Beverly Hills. Larry Salander and Bill O'Reilly, they were dealers in New York City. They had just taken over all of these Colorfield painters. Uh, They had just stolen them from Emmerich. Um, and they took over Olitsky and Nolan and all of these people, but they quadrupled the prices. Of course. Well, they quadrupled the prices on no basis whatsoever. Of course. And how so, Gagosian made money too. <laughs> yeah, but Gagosian would occasionally sell something in between to occasionally uh, recommend the quadrupling of the prices. So they're opening in the middle of the recession in Beverly Hills. On Camden Drive in Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. They, Which is right next to Rodeo for those who aren't Los Angeles. And yeah, I know, but um, <laughs> they didn't put a lot of money into the space. And they open up with... Oh, they had no, by the way, no contacts, no nothing out here. It's not like they had a clientele out here. Were they wow. going to buy somebody's Rolodex? or like, what <laughs> No, 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 no. They were just going to open the doors and thought that because they were doing such good shows, people would flock in and buy art. Oh, how'd that work? Yeah, not well. (laughs) So they brought me out, and I'd done some shows in California, and I knew some clients. They they brought out some some of their staff from New York who were incredibly incompetent. They opened with Ken Nolan at ridiculous prices when the art market was tanking, Mm -hmm. and then they followed up with Olitsky. They got awful, not bad, but awful reviews in the L.A. Times, they were not they were not conscious of the fact that people don't go into galleries in LA the way they do in New York. They needed a scapegoat. And they were Larry Salander, I don't know if you know this, but he's considered the Bernie Madoff of the art world. And Larry Salander went to prison for many, many years. And they were asking me to do things that were not yeah. not legal. Not yeah. kosher. And I refused and I had a contract, and I knew I had to stay six months. I was certainly ready to leave after 90 days. But I had to stay six months, and I stayed six months in one day. And uh, left, and um, they had to pay me for a while because of this contract, much to their chagrin. And they closed. They had nine directors in about two years. Whoa. They kept thinking it was the director's fault. Right, not that they're Because that's the easy one to throw under the bus No, but there. the best was that they opened a gallery in Berlin, and they had an entire staff of people who didn't speak German. 
They thought if you spoke really slowly to them. Oh, God. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yes. I worked for Patrick Painter. I can. (laughs) Anyway, um, you know, it was a a really horrible... That's a pretty good indicator when that many people go through that fast. Oh, yeah. That there's something... I lasted six months and nobody else lasted six months. Yeah. Anyway. And for you to have a contract is interesting that they still didn't find a way to, like, wiggle out of. Well, ironically... um, when, before I moved, I wasn't going to move 3,000 miles without some sort of a... Safety net. Safety net. So I said to my lawyer, write it in English. Mm-hmm. Do not write it in legalese. And Larry signed it without even showing it to an attorney. Cool. That's dumb. That's not advisable. And so then, and then when he was being unbelievably abusive, calling me names that would make your hair curl... A stupid FC on a regular basis. My attorney advised me to get a diary and take notes and mm-hmm. have witnesses and do all the things that Anita Hill didn't do. I mean, this was the time yeah, of Anita sure. Hill. So that when, of course, when they tried to break the contract, we said, no, 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 no. He said, did you not watch the Anita Hill trial? They were unable to break the contract. And then I started, you know, selling work privately here. And then at some point, kind of a a rough time in the 90s, it was not an easy time. So I started representing artists as an agent. I started with uh, Peter Alexander and Bob Sakanich. And I got Peter a show in New York, and I got him the retrospective he had at the Laguna Museum. And then I worked with Bob for many years. He uh, He had done these 10 foot by 30 foot paintings, and we traveled them to museums, and so I worked with Bob, and I'm still friends with both of them. And mm-hmm. and I and I worked with uh, kind of like Dudley Del Blasso did with Robert Therian as an agent. I worked with artists for I don't know like five or six years, and then I started doing resale. And now I sell you know expensive art. Can you describe the difference between an art agent and an art dealer at that time? Oh, at that time, an art agent was working with the artists. They were absolutely on the artist side. Getting them shows, making sure the dealer paid, making sure press releases were sent, kind of staying on top of the dealer, doing, you know, I like to think of myself as a help to both the artist and the dealer, but most mm-hmm. dealers were not thrilled, you know, because I'm very right. strong. Yeah, and, well, you have to be. Yeah, and uh, most dealers were threatened by it. And still are. Threatened by agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh yeah. I was not going to be in the gallery's pocket. I was always going to be in the artist's pocket. What I found is that galleries, the dealers were as crazy as artists. Yes. (laughs) I'd agree. But I also found that you get a lot further with honey than you do with vinegar. If a dealer owed an artist money, it was easier to just ask nicely all the time. But constant. You become a pain in the ass, but a nice pain in the ass. Because it's very easy not to talk, call somebody back or not to pick, pick up calls if somebody screams. It's not going to happen. When you became an art agent, you kind of stayed in that role on some level. And then you said it shifted? You said It now shifted because um, I found that it, you couldn't work as an artist. Because um, most of the time the artists were paying me on a monthly. And they didn't want to do that for more than like a year, a year and a half. It always ended. Right. And whether it ended amicably or... But they just don't want to pay. And, right. And what have you done for me lately was kind of... And I just, you know... I remember an artist calling me up and saying, if you can't get Rob Store, who was a curator at the Modern, to my mm-hmm. studio this month, 
We're through. I said, no, we're through now. Yeah. <laughs> we're through now. That's not a partnership. I keep telling artists that everything has to be a partnership. Right. That if you're working with somebody, you know, that's, you work that's a with partnership. Them. Yeah. Right? It's like you're not going to demand something from anybody. Well, the demand. So, unless grew. it's gotten to And be, it always you know. took a while to get them a show in New York. Yeah. You know, I mean, a show in New York didn't happen overnight because most galleries plan shows two years in advance. Well, at least, yeah. And they didn't want to pay you, though, for the, and why don't you sell something for me, and, you know, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Well, so that was an interesting brief stint, I guess. Well, I did it for, you know, know, like six years or something. I'm trying to think how long. Maybe more, maybe even ten years. Oh, okay. But I, I started doing resale, and it was... A lot more money and a lot less demanding. I mean, either people wanted to buy it or not. And I just thought... Yeah, can you talk about that process? Oh, sure. Um, not ev- sure everybody understands it. No, what, in resale, it's... Um, somebody says, you know, I've, I've owned this painting for 15 years, and I don't want to... You, you want to... I think you want to work with private people versus galleries because um, they take less commission, and you know what they sold sold it for right and also you'll go to Gagosian and they'll say we'll get you 300,000 and I'll say well you know that's not realistic no a painting like that is never sold for 300,000 and I'll get you 200,000 because here are the here are the paintings that sold recently mm-hmm. and my hunch is that you're going to go to Gagosian they'll say they'll get you 300 and then they'll call you six months from now and tell you they can sell it for 200 right mm-hmm. and God knows what their commission they'll take but mm-hmm. I'll take 20%. That's how it works. But it's harder and harder to get material because not only are big galleries after it, right. but the auction houses. Right. And that was my pro- next question. <laughs> and they promise people the moon, and then the and night then- before the auction, they call up. It's like they teach them this at Sotheby's in London. The yeah. night before the auction, call up and say, we have no bids, lower your estimate. There's a new breed of art dealers now. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're aware of that. Art dealer used to be a gentleman's business. I mean... In quotes. Well, <laughs> but a lot of people were wealthy, like Leo Castelli, yeah. Andre Emmerich. They were wealthy. They loved art. They were doing it because um, they loved art, and they weren't doing it for the money. Now people are doing it for the money. Just, Absolutely. Just for the money. Well, also, that's... I mean, I mean Le- Leo Castelli gave... So I twamly three shows that mm-hmm. did not sell before they sold. Right. And that would not happen. That would not happen no. now, no. No. Your show didn't sell, bye-bye. So, uh, but collectors have also changed in that way, too. Well, I, mean, I, I, them... think, I think that, first of all, nobody's gone into galleries anymore. Right. I mean, there's no foot traffic in galleries. And the only people that go to openings are artists. It's all done at art fairs and on the Internet. Mm-hmm. So you're a big collector, and you go to an art fair, and you go to all these galleries, and from then on in, you're going to get Instagrams and JPEGs every day. So you're a big collector, you get a hundred offers of paintings a day. A day! And so (laughs) it's no wonder that unless it's something you're really interested in, you ignore it. Right. And you... um, go to art fairs or when you know that one of your favorite artists is having a show they send you JPEGs before. And a lot of people that go to art fairs, everything's pre sold. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. But, you know, they're like ten art fairs a month now. And it's really not the way to see shows. I mean, I really admired David McKee and Margot Levin who closed 
And they said, this is not why we became art dealers. We became art dealers to promote work, to show a body of work, to do stand-up exhibitions, Mm -hmm. not to just sell, 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 sell. That's a rug merchant. That's not an art dealer. Well, also, people used to go to openings for completely different reasons than they do now as well. I mean, a long time ago, it was sort of like a celebration of the artist's completing this body of work right yeah. now it's just like nobody goes for that oh no it's, who it's you all can, about who, business yeah and, you who you can and who you can like hook up with or do this or that and it's just it's like you know openings have changed so drastically yeah i feel sorry for young artists now because they never really got to experience the fact that people enjoy talking about well they work there was com- a camaraderie know? among artists and there was a camaraderie of, of, among dealers Right. That I don't think exists anymore. I don't think so either. I mean, in, in dealers, it's cutthroat. I, I told the story, uh, you know, in the book I'm writing about, uh, I, in 1979, Bill Cosby came into my gallery, and he bought something, and he went up to the eighth floor, and he was carrying on about me to the woman on the eighth floor, and he left. And the woman on the eighth floor called me and said, listen, Bill Cosby is um, just was here, and all he could talk about was you, and quite frankly, Patty, he's a lech. And she said, if he calls you and he wants you to come pick up cash in his hotel room or mm-hmm. in, or in an apartment, don't go. Have an excuse ready. Of course, I had the excuse ready when he called. Absolutely. And I avoided that experience. What I'm saying is now the eighth floor dealer wouldn't call me. No. The, now they wouldn't call me and warn me. Right. And there was, you know, you, I was friends with a lot of art dealers. Yeah. And when I closed, I mean, the art dealers were wonderful. Wonderful. And the artists were, I mean, I remember why I opened right. when I closed. Because the artists were wonderful. You know, mm-hmm. they were really terrific. I had a, a last picture show. And most of the mm-hmm. artists donated work to help me get out of debt. Talk about nice. And many of the artists have said I was the best dealer they ever had. I mean, I remember when Margot closed, I wrote her an email and said, no more goddamn art fairs. Yeah! <laughs> and she wrote back and said, yes. <laughs> that was it, you know? Yes. <laughs> you know, and David McKee, I remember saying at Freeze, he announced he was closing right before Freeze. David McKee was a completely classy guy. And I walked up to him, I threw my arms around him, and I said, so, join the world of the living. And he said, you yes. got it. And Manny, look at it, look at it, Manny Silverman, right. David McKee, Andrea Rosen, Lisa Cooley. Lisa Cooley wrote a tremendous letter when she was closing about how the art world was changing. And she said she felt like a traveling salesman. And she was always going to art fairs. That, that, that the artists were pressuring her to get a bigger space. And she got the bigger space and couldn't afford it. And the art fairs. The art fairs cost $100,000. I know. For just a booth. You haven't shipped any art there. Right. God forbid, God forbid lights and entertainment and all of that stuff. Well, we interviewed an artist and we were asking, uh, you know, about getting paid. And one of the things he said was that, you know, he sold a, a work for $6,000 at an art fair and he got 425 back. Because the dealer said, well, I have to pay for the shipping. I have, I to, have to make my up my flight. costs. I have to make up my costs, all this stuff. And so he, he ended up getting like, you know, $400 for this piece. So, you know, when dealers start pushing all those costs onto the artist. Right. It's not fair. And you're not, you know, yeah. it's not really working. Well, well, you know, the art world is not regulated. This no, is the problem. There are no rules. There's no rules, there's no certificate, there's no... No, nothing. There's no no guidelines, there's nothing. I mean, first of all, you know, you got to talk about the whole Nodler thing, about what happened there. 
you know, this is one of the oldest galleries in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And this woman walks in, who's a friend of the doorman, and says she has found all of this Abex work, and she's really mysterious about who owns it. Mm -hmm. And they ended up calling it Client X. And she came in with Motherwells and Pollock and Rothko's and Diebenkorn's, and it literally kept the gallery open. And they could never pin her down on the provenance. And people were buying just on the word of Ann Friedman from Nodler. Mm -hmm. And it turns out they were all painted by a little Chinese guy who she found on the street in Soho. But damn, was he good. Well, <laughs> he also left the country. He, he, yeah. he, he moved back to China. But I talk about it. I mean, you know, you have to have, you have, to have a provenance. You have yes. to have a certificate of authenticity. Mm-hmm. You have to have you have to buy from a reputable dealer. You have to have a condition report if you're not seeing it. A condition report. Mm-hmm. God, there were five things that I said that you absolutely. I don't care who you're buying it from. Right. You need. You need. Right. You need the receipt that says that I took the work from this gallery on such and such date, and we both signed it. Yeah. The artwork release. Yeah. Receipt. Yeah, you do. Because those are really easy to fake, and they'll cover their ass before yours. Oh, there's no question. And, I mean, you think about what they sold at Nodler. And and, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and apparently they showed them at the ADAA Art Fair, the one on Park Avenue in New York, and people were walking by saying, I don't know about that. I don't <laughs> yeah. know about that. Yeah. If it walks like a duck and quacks well, like you a know, duck. <laughs> mysterious provenances just don't work. Right. If I ask you how the art world works. What insight could you give me? Oh, boy. Well, the art world is, as I said, all about art fairs and the Internet. And it's all about the big galleries. You know, the Gagosians, the Hauser and Wirtz, the Matthew Marks, the Mm -hmm. Swerner. It's all about the big galleries now. And if you're not a big gallery, you're probably going to close. All of the smaller galleries are closing. Even if they're bundling up with each other, it's still really, really tough out there. Right. I mean, you could shoot a cannon through Bergamot Station. Oh, it's so quiet. <laughs> but you still can't take dogs in the little triangle park, dang it. Uh, well, <laughs> I don't know about that. I've never taken my dog to Bergamot Station. Quick billing department note, amigos. This week's sponsor is Getting Your Shit Together a dynamic and important resource for contemporary artists of all kinds. Check out the book, opportunities, articles, advice, software, and more at gystink.com and use the code FATBABY for free shipping. Again, that's Gist Inc. promo code FATBABY. Okay, back to the show. And most galleries I go into, it's a ghost town. Yeah. It's an opening and then a ghost town. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And they, I mean, part of the fun when owning a gallery was when people would come in and hang out and talk and. Yeah. Yeah. And get the good gossip, man. And get the good gossip. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I'd get a review in the New York Times and people would line up like movie, like a movie theater. Because it meant something then. It meant something then. Yeah. And I don't know how much reviews mean anything now. Well, it's interesting because there's no writers. Very I like, few. Writers. I like David Pagel. 
So there's, I mean, but there's, you know, comparatively, the number of I like Carolina Miranda, too. Yeah. Yeah. She's a dog. Yeah. I mean. uh, But I mean, it used to be that people, you know, there was a really kind of consistent base of professional writers. Now most of the stuff is. Well, but now all the magazines are going, too. Yeah. I mean, art form. They're all on, like, blogs or something. Yeah, art work is online now. Right? Yeah. yeah, and art forums being protested. For oh, their, art forum is it, their it, sexist ways. Yeah, it's, yeah, but they've been like that forever. No, I know, but, but I it's know, like a no, big one. Now. But no, it's a big one because yeah. oh, of I the know. night landsman thing. Yeah. yeah, they've been busted. So, is it as important to still get your show written about if anybody can do it? Like we have the internet. I I think it's important, but it's not the end of the world the way it was the uh, before. But you know, art magazines. I mean, magazines in general. I mean, magazines are gone, bookstores are gone, record stores are gone, and I think art galleries are... I mean, I think the brick-and-mortar art gallery is almost over, and I think what we're going to have are big, fancy shows like you see at Hauser and Wirth and Gagosian and Matthew Marks and Spruth Majors. I mean, there's going to be a handful of galleries in this town, and what young artists are going to do, I don't know. I don't know. There's a the country is sort of shifting in a way that so in the in the 60s and 70s there were a lot of artists that weren't being shown and uh, alternative space movement started sure and so there was a lot of options for that and then it, it kind of slowed down for a really long time because well I was a around million galleries I was around when AIR started yeah. in New York you know and that's a really good alternative space absolutely and Exit Art was a really good space uh, so there's a lot of good spaces around then in the 90s. There a million galleries opened up. Yeah, and the million and then galleries those spaces closed. were kind of, and then they've all closed. So what's interesting is that in 1991, I started a nonprofit in LA, and there were only three open at the time. Now there's over a hundred. Oh, are there really? So what's really interesting to me is that it seems like there's a kind of resurgence back to the artists coming up with solutions for themselves because either nobody's treating them well, they're not getting paid, or they're not making work that really fits a commercial gallery. Right. Or they're interested in doing something completely outside of that. That the art world's going the way of the way the music industry has, and that artists are now supporting themselves and trying to figure that out. It's been really interesting to watch this resurgence of spaces by artists coming up. And artists, I think, are finally figuring out that they have to own the means of their own production in some way. Well, Shepard Ferry's having a show... The we North- have tickets, by the way. I didn't tell you. We got oh, tickets okay. last night. <laughs> for, for what? For the new Shepherd Fairy show. Oh, and do you have to get tickets? Yes. That's the way a lot of stuff is for going. The, it's a free show opening, but you have to have tickets so that they have a fair way of letting people in to hit fire code. So yeah. you have to, you have to, how do you do that? Um, I found out on Twitter and ended up going to... <laughs> There's no dealer involved with Shepherd Fairy. No, huh? No. If it's on Eventbrite, I okay, so on Twitter last night. Eventbrite. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So what's interesting is I'm, I'm noticing that there's all kinds of artists that have a ton of money don't need a dealer. Right. But then there's, and they're stopping to work with dealers, right? Right. So then other artists are now trying to figure out, it's like, okay, if I don't actually want to be manipulated that way, or if I don't want to make the things that my dealer tells me to make, I got to start thinking about what I'm going to do myself. And so there's this bit, huge resurgence of artists wanting to know inf- just basic information because they know that they're not going to get a gallery or they know that they're not going to get a good gallery. Right. Or they know that that gallery is going to close anyway. Right. 
So there's there's this really interesting thing going on, and dealers are so afraid of artists knowing how things work that they're writing all these articles about, oh, professional practices for artists is something that's, like, dangerous. If you teach artists how to do things themselves, it's really dangerous, and blah, blah, blah. And just it kind of cracks me up because they're kind of, like, running scared in some way that, that artists actually know what they're doing. So we sent somebody to Bergamon Station to do an interview with all the dealers and asked them, is there anything that you want your artists to know professional-wise? 95% of them said we don't want them to know anything because we can't manipulate them was basically their answer. So again, it's like the, the artist, if the artist is not having a good experience with the dealer and they're not getting paid, which seems to be the biggest complaint I hear from artists. Oh, of course. It always has been. It's, yeah, but in some way, that's having a huge impact on artists surviving because artists don't want to deal with that anymore. Oh, it's a bore. If, you know, if they're being abused by dealers, why? But yet young artists think that that's the only way to be an artist these days is to get a dealer... And almost everybody who comes in, let's say, to CalArts has that idea. Which is crazy. Yeah. But, and so when you explain things otherwise than that, then you're, a, you're kind of a killjoy. Well, I mean, as I said, you know? Shepard Ferry's never had a gallery. Yeah. And, um... I mean, there's a lot of people who haven't. But I think it's, what's happening now is that it's interesting how the, the things are kind of shifting responsibility in some way. Because a lot of artists just thought, oh, I'm going to graduate. I'm going to get a gallery. My life is, oh, you know, it's fine. Mm. That's the only thing you need to worry about. Um, when I was talking to Ruby Lerner, and she said, when you get a gallery, that's when things start to get shitty. Ruby, <laughs> yeah, there's no Ruby Lerner from the world. From, no, from Creative Capital. Oh, yeah, isn't she the best? Yeah, she's the best. But it's like it's, but it's interesting, these sort of scenarios, because she said, came and talked to my class. She's doing some sort of residency at CalArts and said, you know, this is the best thing you can do for yourself as an artist is to know more than your dealer, which is what I always try to tell oh, all my yeah. artists, right? Yeah. So that if you know how to negotiate that, and, the, and if that doesn't work, you know how to negotiate something else. Or if that doesn't work, this is what all these artists have done. It's so interesting watching the whole country kind of shift it's, it's, in this It's in a this big way. change. It's a it's big a change. change. It's a big change. I mean, galleries are only 200 years old. About. Really? Yeah. Huh. 200 in the grand scheme of things is not very old. No. So I think that's also interesting because people, of course, things are going to evolve. But I think galleries kind of blew well, up. Well, but I think that a lot of these New York galleries that have opened out here, they think that they're all it's these... It's their last-ditch effort. Well, no, they think that there are all these secret collectors in California that right. they don't own. They don't know. And they know them all. I know. It's, it's, it's the same people everywhere. It's, it's, it's they it's know like the them all. It's the same 1%. Yeah, yeah, they know them all. And well, all these museum peoples that people... That end up, I was with Lowry Sims on Friday, and we were running around at PST shows. Mm-hmm. And she said, when I heard Philippe de Montebello went to Aquavella, I thought, oh, my God, you've sold out. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm just going to curate. I, I'm not going to sell. <laughs> <laughs> and that was her response. You know, I mean, all these museum people that end up at galleries, right. if they don't sell, they're out. Yeah. And, it, and it happens quickly. Yeah. If they don't. Really, really concentrating on the, on the business they're out. So just out of curiosity, what would you advise young artists today? I would advise them to uh, get into artist-run mm-hmm. shows and to go around and, and try and meet curators and try and get into museum shows. I wouldn't advise them to try and to do their career on their own. I would advise right. them to get some help whether it's from an agent or somebody who'd been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. 
Because artists with no experience make serious mistakes. I remember an artist saying to me after I'd gotten him a show at Willard Gallery, he said to me, some people think my work is as important as Jasper John's. And I said to him, oh, that's the sort of thing you want to whisper to your wife late at night. And you never want to tell this to your agent. No. He ended up getting, his show sold out, and uh, Saatchi bought a lot of paintings, and he thought he was just the shits. And, I mean, talk to people, I would say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to older artists that have been around. You never get a gallery by going in on your own. You always get a gallery through other artists. Be in group shows. Don't think that you're going to be able to make a living from your art for a long time. Right. Teach. Do something. I remember a 20-something-year-old artist saying to me, I'm the best sculptor of my... He was offered a -a two-day-a-week teaching job at Princeton. Uh I mean, really prestigious. Yeah, yeah. And he turned it down because he felt that he was the most important sculptor of his generation and he shouldn't have to teach. I said, well, that's just stupid. Do you have any idea who you would meet at Princeton? Absolutely. Does the most important sculptor in the world have to eat? <laughs> and, and, he had two, and he had two kids, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure kids still like food. That's yeah, they kid the, and I threw him out of my gallery because it turns out he sold a piece to a collector and decided not to give me my commission. Not only that, but I had paid to fabricate the piece. Oh. So he stole not only my commission... But the $3,333 I paid to fabricate it. And the museum curator, which for reasons that are unknown, he thought was his friend, not mine, when he met him through me, called me and said, you should know this. Your artist just changed the credit line uh, for the piece. I knew it in my, you know, in your back of your mind, I knew that he was pulling that number. So I sent him a check for 33 cents and... Because that I had owed him some money from a sale, right? And I sent him a check for thirty three cents and threw him out of the gallery. Did he cash it? Yeah, he did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he did. I mean, just forget it. You know, yeah. that's a really good fuck you though. Like, take your thirty three cents and shove it. Yeah, here, this is what I owe you, and this is what you tried to steal from me. Yep. Yeah, and I'm telling everybody. All those relationships and. Every artist has some really bizarre relationship with the they're, people that they're working with. Oh, totally. It's just, it's sort of, it's... it's have you ever heard an artist, you know? have you ever met an artist who said they were very happy, they were happy with their dealer? <laughs> no. Okay, so that's settles Only it. at their show, solo opening, going, yeah, no, I love him, it's great. <laughs> but not, not, right, not a month later. Yeah, no, no, not really. I think that's kind of unfortunate that there's a whole career and nobody's happy. <laughs> it's, it's like yeah. you go into the arts and it's just everything is just one thing after another. And, and artists are struggling and galleries are struggling and all these different things are happening. And people I are actually had an artist, treated badly. And, I had an artist yeah. call me up once and actually said to me, you are such a nowhere gallery. Diana Fuller Gallery from San Francisco is doing a landscape painting show and she hasn't even seen my work. And Diana Fuller had been in that afternoon and hated it. And I said, well, actually, Diana Fuller um, came in this afternoon, and she picked three artists from the gallery to be in the show. And I showed her your work, and she absolutely hated it. And I said, so let me tell you, Michael. Mm -hmm. I said, all behavior is explainable. Not all behavior is acceptable. 
your behavior, for instance, mm -hmm. is unacceptable. Absolutely. Well, I always wondered why artists thought that they could be so demanding all the time. So stupid. You know, as well. And it just, it just, it's sort of like the best way to kill anything. Sure. But boy, the entitlement of artists, I think, has <sighs> been such a huge problem for so long. What's interesting is if artists have to actually figure things out themselves, I think it's well, going to change. Well, or they think that their work is so saleable they could do it on their own out of their studio. You know, which doesn't. I mean, it never some, pans out like exceedingly well. It'll be okay for a minute, but not be long for a term, minute, but yeah. not long term. Yeah. Even when an artist has a museum show, there has to be a professional that people can call and find out what's for sale. Because if they because if they call the artists, they him and they haw, and they're not ready to really answer that at all, and it makes everything look watered down. You're right. How much is that painting? Well, I really want no. This is the price. That's one of the things that I, since I've been training artists for a long time, I mean, all those really simple things, when you start explaining them, you know, it's like, oh, no, you should actually have that written down. Oh, a and price. you should know exactly what that is. A price. There's no hemming and hawing in art. Yeah. Right? It's like, you do that, forget about it. No. I mean, you have to be, if you're going to take over the sell sales of your own work, you have to be better than any dealer. Oh, yeah. And, you know. And have you ever met a dealer? Maybe Mark Grosjean is better. But other than that, I've never met an artist who's better at selling than a, than a dealer. It's very hard to make and sell sometimes. No, very hard because you know, you're emotionally so, attached. Yeah, yeah. that's not how good business decisions no, no, are made. No, no, it's not. There's so many galleries have opened in L.A. where the people don't know what they're doing. That's true. It's a really interesting thing. And I'm just trying to think of, in, is there any other industry where people just open stuff with well, being they, incredibly they, naive and not knowing anything? And, and, and rich. Or Yeah, and rich. They, and they thought that but they, they, they think. It'll give them gold stars in Hollywood or something or, you know, connect them to other people. But they don't know a thing about what they're doing. So, and, and they keep opening. It's, I'm not really surprised that galleries are closing. No. For many, many reasons. But I'm wondering if you have any inclination about what you think is next. So, besides the big I think tiers, that, I think that, um, yeah, they'll be the big people and then they'll be... Private dealers that right. that might have a space where they might deal out of their own space, but it's all done on computers now anyway. People don't come and see paintings. Right. No, you call Frank Lloyd. You have a brunch that he had catered in, and then you just go see the space at LA Packing that we rented and put the artwork up in. Right. That's it. That's the whole game. I mean, Frank Lloyd is a typical example of somebody who's doing it without a gallery now. And was around for a long and time. And was around for a very long yeah. time. And, and did, still seems to have some semblance of backbone and ethics. I really oh, like he's him. really moral. Yeah, he's a good yeah, guy. Yeah, a really good guy. And really knows a lot about ceramics. And, I mean, he's one of the good guys. And it's so fun to, to watch the fact that ceramics is actually finally being recognized in yeah. the world. Yeah, And perhaps somebody like that that's been around so long and so ethical and so committed to yeah. one thing oh, absolutely. that people wouldn't touch. And so I think it's really great that he's that he's still around to participate in this kind and of And he's, he's managing artist careers. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, yeah. he's dealing with Craig Kaufman and he's the Most the of these are dead, but it's still a career. You know, and Larry Bell and people yeah. like that. Too bad we don't have more of those. I think that there are a handful. Yeah. I mean, I was on the phone with a friend of mine this morning, and he said, are there five art dealers that you can trust? I said, yeah, about five. <laughs> about five. Right. That's sad and true. What's the shadiest thing you've ever seen a dealer pull? I once saw a dealer cutting Charles Birchfield watercolors in half. 
That was... <laughs> That's pretty bad. To make intentional destroy or to sell it as two pieces? Sell it as two pieces because the, the size of Charles Birchfield watercolors was too big to sell. So they cut it in half. Certainly, Larry Salander, you know what he did, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's unbelievable. He would go to usually a friend and say, I want to buy this Gorky. And this Gorky is 800000 If you put up 400000 and I'll put up 400000 when I sell it for a million and a half in a month, mm. we'll split the profits. And everybody said, sure. And Larry's my friend. Except he did it six times with one picture. So it was a Ponzi scheme. You know, there's the famous story about... Way to make friends. <laughs> well, you know, he got divorced. He lost, yeah. he lost everything. Wow. And he spent... Many, many years in prison. That was just crazy. Funny story was when there literally was a Gorky up for sale at Sotheby's and John McEnroe walked into Sotheby's and said, I own half of that picture. And the entire room cracked up. <laughs> you and five Because a lot of people owned half of that picture. <laughs> five other people. That's yeah. Funny. Yeah. Of course, the lawsuits flew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And artists didn't want to hear it. I knew how sleazy he was. Graham Nixon was having a show with him, and I called him up, and I said, don't do this. He'd never do this to me. I said, yes, he would. Mm-hmm. Well, I've, yeah, I've had a lot of experiences of artists who, that, well, so-and-so's interested in my work, and I say always in reply, if I know about them, do your homework. Yeah. And they don't. No. They jump in, they get it, and then they email me but people a don't. year later saying, I haven't been paid. Yeah. You know, what's the deal? And I said, I told you to do your homework. Everybody yeah. knows that dealer three, three years behind paying their artists. Common knowledge. So you could do your homework pretty easily in L.A. But you could do your homework about everything. I mean, yeah. I mean, Lowry was telling me the other day that the Studio Museum of Harlem, or, or not, no, she, the American, she went to the this cra- big crafts museum in, in New York after she left oh, the Studio right. Museum. She said she couldn't raise money anymore. And so she went to the crafts museum and they were going to hire a director who she knew had been fired from his last job because right. he wasn't a good f- fundraiser. And she said, check your references, do your homework. They didn't. I'm always surprised when that happens. They didn't. He was hired. He was fired a year later. And dealers will hire people. And, yes. And uh, I went to a big dealer recently, and I said, talk to his former employers. He's been fired from every job he's ever had. Talk to, t- talk to his former employers. And they didn't, and of course... And then they wonder why things go south. Yeah, and they wonder why things go south. If somebody has a long career and he's been fired from every job, there's a reason. Yeah. He knows everyone, and, and, and people like him. I said, uh-huh, uh-huh, until they don't. Yeah. Your reputation is everything. And, and there are dealers that have bad reputations. Many. Many, 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 many. many. There's so many horrible things that have happened with dealers and artists. And it still seems, it sort of reminds me of the current Hollywood situation where no, everybody knew everything and nobody talks. Yeah. I mean, I knew, about, I knew about Harvey Weinstein and I'm oh, not in the business. You yeah, know? right. You know, all of those scenarios, it's kind of ruined the art world. Yeah. You know, all the crap that has taken place and, you know, all the people that have been abused and all the sexism and racism. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, it's just... Well, like the, the Me Too the thing was, oh, you yeah. know... I yeah. mean, there, there's a lot of that in the art world. Oh, I know. I mean, I opened my gallery. I was 26 when I opened. And, That's um, pretty young to start a gallery. Yeah. <laughs> but I had a master's degree in art history. Absolutely. And I worked for, gal- for museums and galleries in a magazine. Yeah. So I had experience. Yeah. But I still didn't 
I had a lot to learn. And, um, <laughs> and I didn't call it the Patricia Hamilton Gallery. I called it the Hamilton Gallery. Right. Because of the sexism. Honey is the boss in. People yeah, say I remember. Ooh, Honey. Yeah, yeah that, that'll go over real well. Uh-huh. Right? I used to get a lot of Dear Sir letters yeah. when I was running a space. Yeah. You know, Dear Sir. What? Goofed on that one. Yeah. <laughs> big you mistake. You do your homework. Yeah. yeah. Big mistake. I said, you know how much that pisses me off? <laughs> and so I'd write him a nice little letter. I actually had an artist. No come- sirs work here. <laughs> I actually had an artist come into my gallery. And uh, it was during the Louise Bourgeois show. And I was nice. Yeah. He assumed I wanted to show his work. And he did a Dun and Bradstreet report on me. I found out I went nuclear. You don't do that. There are a lot of galleries that are going to close this year. And they're going to owe a lot. I mean, somebody said to me, who left this dealer that has a reputation of owing people money. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, God, when he closes, he's going to have to take a big loan out to pay all the artists back. I turned around and I said... What makes you think he's going to pay the do artist that. Yeah. back? I said, do you know how many dealers have just skipped? Yeah, they just close and that's it. Boom, and that's your it. stuff's in there. You can't get it. Oh, but, what's your Doug you know. Christmas story? I'm sure you have to have one. I never did business with Doug Christmas. I never, She's I, like the Joker card, man. No, <laughs> no I, I, his reputation preceded him. That's yeah. my favorite icebreaker at parties. Yeah, no, I, so mean, good I mean... Uh, <laughs> I, I never did business with Doug Christmas. It's for the best. I mean, they're still open. I know. They still get people to freaking work that gallery. Yeah, but not many. They're down to a skeletal staff. So. Well, because it now says you have to live within five miles of the gallery. And you're on call 24-7. This is what it's turned out to be. It's unbelievable what people are now doing for dealers as jobs. And he still doesn't pay you enough to live anywhere. So... Kind of move. Wow. <laughs> we can add a little bit to your stories, maybe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is an art handler from way back who can tell you more stories about galleries than you'd ever. Well, art handlers are the ones that always know when galleries are going to close. Oh, yeah. Because you, you're around for all the meltdowns from a gallerist. Yeah. You know, when they want to throw the biggest tantrum is when there's an audience. Well, I think we've wrapped it up. Yep. Dig it. Our music is brought to us by Sean Lee's Ping Pong Orchestra. You can check him out on Spotify, Pandora, and the internet at large. Thanks, Sean. And don't forget to check out Gist Inc. and use the promo code FATBABY to get free shipping on the cool shit we make. That's it for this episode, amigos. Until next time, be nice to the interns and go make good art.